Thanks for joining us for another edition of Biotech and Life Sciences CEOs. Today, we're excited to have Raymond Peterson as our guest. Raymond is the founder and CEO of DNA Analytics. He brings over 20 years biotech experience to DNA's efforts to develop algorithms and genetic assays intended to help client companies improve and expedite genetic research and testing. Raymond's background includes time at the National Cancer Institute, where he led the development of nucleic acid modeling algorithms, which earned awards for research excellence, forming the basis for his first company, Celadon. In addition to his work at DNA Analytics, Raymond is active in supporting early stage ventures in the Washington DC area with insights from his experience in finance, business development, and operations. Raymond, I read that you recently raised some money for the American Lung Association by biking from Seattle to Atlantic City. First of all, what made you decide to bike like 3,000 miles? <laughs> well, really good question. From the experience that might translate to entrepreneurship in the life sciences. Uh, yeah, could well be. Uh, well, thank you for that great introduction. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited to be here as well. Um, so why did I bike my across the country? Well, uh, so in terms of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the foundation, the um, Heart Institute, you know, certainly we have had a heart disease in our, uh, um, in our family. And so it was very much uh, on the top of my mind to do something like this. Um, I actually I did it a few years ago, and I was a bit younger then, and it seemed like this insurmountable goal that um, I just had to do, <laughs> and and that nobody was going to tell me I wasn't going to do it. Well, so I guess when you uh, when you start with a uh, an empty sheet of paper, right, and you uh, <clears throat> design a company in the life sciences, why you need that that sort of uh, devil may care. Yes. kind of attitude. Right. Man, you've used um, kind of a layout of the scientific problem behind the development of the COVID vaccines as a descriptor of the strategy behind the development of the DNA analytics, analytics product, which you call AccuMatch. Yes. Maybe you could kind of walk us through that journey as a way to a general description of what you're trying to do with AccuMatch. And first of all, can you tell us about some of the definitions? Like, for instance, what's a genetic probe and why is it important? Ah, very good. Okay, so um, that, that's an excellent question. I will start there. So a genetic probe um, in biotechnology is a, um, it, it's a short single strand of DNA or RNA uh, that is used to uh, query or to match a very specific uh, gene sequence in our genome. So probably, as you know, our genome has, you know, 2,000 unique base pairs, you know, 4,000 if you pair them up. Uh, and, and it's not so easy to get uh, a, a gene probe that's unique uh, to a gene. Um, and the reason you would want it unique to the gene is if you're doing, say, diagnostics or gene therapy, you want to target that very, very specific gene and none others in the genome. Um, there's only the four bases um, of chemical letters in the nucleic acids, the A, C, G, and T, A pairs with T, C pairs with G. And because you have such a limited alphabet there, um, when you have 
two billion opportunities, uh, you know, uh, just from random chance, there's maybe going to be uh, matches elsewhere in the genome. Um, and so that's what our algorithms do is, is we sort of scan the genome um, and we look at the biophysical properties of those genes and identify the best location in that gene uh, to put that gene probe so that a diagnostic will have a very clear signal for that gene. For example, say cystic fibrosis. Uh, you might want to know whether you, know, you, you have that gene or not. Um, and uh, so that, that's, uh, but, but you don't want it to be confused with another gene. Uh, and same thing with say gene editing or gene therapy. Uh, if there is a defective gene, say cystic fibrosis, and you want to change that and repair it, well, you only want to make that repair in that one location. You don't want to change other areas of the genome because that could lead to, to problems. So I read today, as, as a matter of fact, I think it was in Endpoints about some of the difficulties that um, the gene editing companies have had with AAV vectors. Yes and lipid nanoparticles and others that have caused, in some cases, the FDA to uh, to put a hold yes. on, on what they're doing. Tell us about why a gene probe might be superior in terms of that targeting. Yes. Uh, so there's a number of ways. Uh, one in particular, so these those um, technologies that you described all use uh, gene probes, although they're not all known by that same name. Uh, so, for example, for gene editing, CRISPR is the acronym that, that people you know talk about, and so there it's called a, a guide probe um, in terms of like guiding to the to that gene. Um, so, yes, there are a number of ways in which things go wrong. Um, we've already touched on the one, which is if that guide probe matches another gene and makes an edit in another gene, that would presumably destroy the function um, of that and information in that other gene. Uh, but then also um, some of these gene therapies um, have been potentially causing an, immu an immunological response in patients um, that you put these, um, as you say, the so, right, so that AAV, that vector, that's a virus. We have to be able to get these guide strands into the cells. And so one delivery mechanism is to put these guide strands um, inside the shell of a virus, and then you infect the person with that sort of dormant virus, but that virus does attach to cells and then um, gets that uh, genetic material, the guide strand inside the cells, um, and then it does its business inside the cells. Well, that whole process could sometimes cause our immune system to recognize that as a, um, as a, fo as a foreign entity and either have a, a very strong immunological reaction, which um, sometimes they call that a a storm could could you know cause like really severe um, uh, fever and other side effects. Um, but then also there has been some evidence that um, uh, these putting these entities into the cell could could somehow uh, or sometimes um, causes the cellular machinery to act in such a way that the cell then uh, becomes somewhat cancerous and divides uncontrollably. Uh, and so those are two main areas in which uh, we have to be careful. And the way that a gene probe could can improve on that is, A, uh, the best gene probe means that you would have to use a, a lower amount of it, sort of less drug in the body. And less drug then means that you uh, have less opportunity for side effects. Um, and then also we can design uh, somewhat around that immune, that in, of causing that immune response. 
Um, and so, so were those the kinds of things that you were seeing? And maybe did you read about yes. other things this morning that, that yes. I might be able to comment on? There was, um, well, I don't, um, it was Tessera, a company named Tessera. Ah, yes. Um, and and they're, you know, looking to, to move away from the uh, uh, LNPs. Right, exactly. Uh, so interestingly, uh, this past week uh, was a very big uh, social week in biotech uh, because it was the J.P. Morgan Biotech Week in San Francisco, uh, which I attended and gave a presentation for DNA Analytics. Um, there's actually uh, four or five conferences at the same time. Uh, none of them are large enough to accommodate the entire industry. Uh, and so my uh, presentation was at the Biotech Showcase. And we talked to maybe something like 25 or 30 one-on-one uh, -on -one partnering sessions with gene therapy companies. Uh, and many of them are interested in our, in our technology because they do see how uh, having better gene match algorithms in the design of their gene therapies uh, will be able to give them a uh, higher quality drug candidate uh, in less time and for less cost. Right. So that the... Um... Match algorithms, which are, let's say, currently in use, broadly, yes. I guess date back to the late '90s to the early 2000s. That's right. And and they have resulted as a result of, you know, inaccuracies, um, uh, giving bad designs. I guess as many as 65 percent of the time. Yes, that's right. Um, What's been the effect in the clinic in terms of operations of those inaccuracies? Are they built into timelines in the clinic? Are they expected? Sure. Well, so if you, um, if, if by clinic you mean the, say the entire development process of this, right. of this drug, uh, right? So there's uh, several uh, sort of stages to that. Uh, the first steps in research and discovery, of course, are to like sort of have your target. Um, of which gene it is that you want to uh, modify. And then at the next step, that's where our algorithms come in, is that where you need to design that drug to that gene. Once you design that drug, it's usually not a, a drug or a candidate. It's a little bit like high throughput screening with, with traditional pharmaceutical companies where um, uh, the development company will come up with maybe several thousand gene probe candidates or guide strand candidates, and then do a laboratory testing of those candidates, uh, which might take six months, a year or more and require a very large infrastructure and uh, may, maybe as much as several million dollars or more. Uh, and so that kind of limits the uh, ability of this technology to those companies that have the resources to do that, uh, maybe tens of millions of dollars it takes to screen. Uh, and at the end of that process, they winnowed all of those candidates down to uh, just several, and then those several candidates go into the into the clinic, uh, and some of those will succeed, some will fail, uh, and so what we're able to do with our algorithms is uh, reduce that uh, set that they test in the laboratory. Um, so you spend a little bit more time in design, but you may only have to test ten or twenty candidates in the laboratory, and then by the time you do get to your further experiments, putting them into animal models and humans, because you have better drug candidates. 
um, they, they then pass all of those criteria um, and, and, and gates as you go through a drug development that yes, they, they look, um, you know, operate well in cells and they operate well in uh, maybe mice and then uh, eventually into humans and, the, you know, and to be safe and effective in humans. So one thing I didn't understand as I went through your deck was the way that you described uh, the improvement in accuracy. The way it was yes. quantified. Can you give us kind of a layman's description of that? Sure. Uh, so uh, when two nucleic acid strands come together, those A's match with T and G pairs with C, um, there's a strength of what we call hybridization. Hybridization means that they're coming together. Um, and so that hybridization, the strength of that, depends on the order of those DNA letters. Say A, G, C, T is gonna have a different strength than T, T, G, G, T. Uh, and uh, so that's what our algorithms measure. We did very specific and sort of controlled ex experiments in the laboratory um, and generated the data for all possible um, matches uh, in a very, over a short distance um, and then with the, that, we were able to train our algorithms. So uh, in the in the um, uh, in the science and in, in the industry, they call it um, this match strength. So sequence depend it depends on the sequence. So it, like and the strength of an A matching a T depends on the letter that comes before it and the letter that comes after it. Uh, and so we measured all possible uh, contexts like that. Uh, others have done that as well. Uh, but what we did that's different um, is because it now is 20, 30 years later, uh, we have improved genetic technology and more high throughput technology. So we were able to generate 20 times as much data as the prior algorithms. Um, and then because we were able to generate so much data, um, we also were able to look at the statistical models that were used um, in prior studies and we're able to improve those statistical models. So our algorithms are very similar um, statistically to prior algorithms, but have some improvements to them. And so when you add those two things together, the improvement in the, in the statistics and the modeling of those nucleic acids, and then the vast amount of data, we're just able to become more accurate and precise than the prior algorithms. So I think in the deck you, you um, implied at least, uh, a significant reduction in terms of time to market. Can, can you give us an idea in practical terms um, what that might be relative to current in industry standards? Sure. Um, so it's anywhere from months to years of the improvement. Uh, so again, as I had mentioned earlier, you have this, um, this design, you have some number of candidates, you, design, you uh, test and optimize those or screen and optimize those in the laboratory. Uh, and so that process can take anywhere from six months to two years uh, because they, the number of candidates are, say, something like two, 3,000 candidates because we're, we're able to come up with a much shorter or much smaller set to test in the laboratory, maybe 10 or 20 or 30. Uh, that ends up being maybe a matter of weeks uh, to months versus wow. many months to years. Yeah, so it, it, it is truly, you know, transformatory uh, and transformational. There is um, an analogy 
uh, to our algorithms, which is in um, sort of the traditional pharmaceutical approach, which is called small molecules. Um, and those are the drugs that were most of the drugs that are on the market. When we go get aspirin, that, that's a small molecule. Um, you know, ibuprofen is a, is a small molecule, and that's true uh, of, of most of the drugs that are on the market. So these are very small chemicals that have either been by luck and found in nature or designed in, in, um, through, in, the, in the laboratory to actually bind to, say, a, a protein in the body. And it's that binding to the protein in the body that is the, uh, um, makes the effect of the drug. Uh, so, so there's computational drug discovery uh, that has been um, advancing over the past 30 and 40 years. And so for small molecule drug discovery, there's, there's dozens of companies out there that are doing computational models to, to model in the computer the interaction of that small molecule and that protein to see how they fit together. And then once you get a candidate protein um, to, to, to tweak the chemical structure of that, of that chemical to fit better into that, that protein and, and the sort of op operational active site of that protein. Uh, so, um, and, and it's the same sort of value proposition benefit there that by uh, performing all that computation, uh, then in the laboratory, you may only have, say, 100 chemicals to try. And out of those, you get some uh, candidate or lead or hit chemicals, as opposed to what pre previously was done, which is pharmaceutical companies were uh, screening hundreds of thousands of chemicals. Uh, and so we're very similar to that. We use different molecules. Our molecules are the nucleic acid. So our drug is, is, is the, a, a short uh, section of DNA or RNA, uh, as opposed to that small chemical. Uh, but it's the same kind of conceptual thing where we're, we're able to apply these models uh, to, the, to the heart of how that drug operates, which is the hybridization of that gene probe or guide probe to the, um, to the gene and where else it might hit elsewhere. And so one of the advantages and why people have been so excited about nucleic acids is that uh, we more or less know our full set of genetic material. I mean, we've had the genome project. We've sequenced right. that. We know our messenger RNA. Uh, it's not perfect. We don't know everything, um, but, but we kind of have a complete picture of that or almost complete picture of that. Versus for small molecules, um, we've, we've got 100,000 proteins and those proteins, all, every single one of them has a very complicated shape. And in order to do a comprehensive computational screen, on the small molecule side, you would have to computationally see how that small molecule bound to the entire protein um, of all 100,000 proteins. And that's just computationally not feasible today. Whereas for us on the gene side, we are able to do more or less a comprehensive um, hybridization study where we can see exactly how that uh, putative drug or candidate drug is going to bind to its uh, target gene and also how it looks like it's going to bind elsewhere in the genome. So, and, and again, that's one of the excitements of the genetic medicine is that we're able to have more of a complete picture kind of coming out of the gate versus uh, traditional drug discovery where sure you can show in a cell that there's a, that that drug is highly effective that's not why most drugs fail. It's not because of lack of effectiveness, but it's because of side effects. And it's those right. side effects that really get the drugs. And so with our algorithms and also in this whole space, 
we're better able to predict those side effects and to design around them and to prevent those side effects from happening. So your first company, Celadon, yes. built software for the design of genetic diagnostic assays. That's right. We're ultimately licensed to companies like Illumina and Quigen and Millipore, that sort of thing. Yes. And it was, it's been stated as having been the precursor to DNA analytics. Yes. How is DNA analytics kind of the next iteration of what you were doing at Celadon? Right. Um, well, thank you for asking that. So at Celadon, uh, the difference was that we did not have our own algorithms. We were using the industry standard algorithms okay. that were you know, publicly available. These are generally scientists uh, who had published articles. Uh, and, and we took the data from the, uh, those articles. Uh, and it was during that work, during Celadon, that we became dissatisfied with those algorithms um, and felt that there was a better way of doing things. And so that's why we went out and, and um, were able to secure funding for doing the uh, sort of vario idiosyncratic uh, laboratory work that was required to uh, retrain and better train the algorithms. So what's different about DNA analytics is that we have very unique uh, intellectual property. It's not just a matter of taking what was out in the literature and applying that in a good way. We actually are able to get better predictions because of our algorithms. And what was kind of, what was the process and how long did the process take toward developing that IP? Right. Um, so the process was somewhat long. It was a five to six year process. And we, uh, the funding that we had was, uh, well, there was a number of sources. The first source was um, the state of Maryland. Uh, this is something that some entrepreneurs might actually be very interested uh, in, that the state of Maryland has uh, a number of programs to help entrepreneurs, especially in high technology fields, that when I talk to people from other states, they're, they're sort of astonished that Maryland has these programs. Uh, so one of the programs, um, and this is what started our algorithms, uh, was something called the Maryland Industrial Partnership Program, or, or MIPS. And uh, which is its acronym. And the way that, that it works is that the state of Maryland uh, provided funding of $200,000 uh, to a uh, professor, Dr. Jason Kahn at the University of Maryland College Park. The money went to his lab. Our company contributed uh, some money to that. Uh, I think it was about a 10% .10 uh, match that we, we matched. Um, and uh, Dr. Kahn um, is the is the genius who was able to look at the existing algorithms and the data that was generated to train those algorithms and say, yes, we can do a better, we can do a better job. Uh, and so the work was uh, initially started in his laboratory under that funding mechanism. Uh, we discovered with that as we generated the data that actually the, the existing algorithms uh, were in fact, could be improved, which, which was sort of doubted at the time. Uh, people thought that it was as, uh, that the algorithms were as accurate and precise as they could be. Uh, and so we leveraged that information to then get additional funding from the National Cancer Institute under uh, the uh, Small Business Innovative Research Program. And so we had uh, a, uh, then won a $750,000 two-year award. Um, and that's what really promoted um, and was, enabled us to develop 
the laboratory work and generate the data in the laboratory. Um, as it turned out, what we had not anticipated uh, was how difficult it would be to actually use that data statistically to generate our algorithms. So after those two years uh, were done, and so now we're near like three or four because the, um, actually four, because the, uh, um, we had the two-year project with Maryland, and then it took another two years with the NCI. I took another two years uh, to actually go through all of our data and to, to um, understand it as well as it needed to be understood and to uh, verify it um, and make sure that it was good data in the laboratory, sort of quality assurance, quality control, which we believe some of the other studies uh, which I'll get to in, in a moment, uh, we're not as good at that, or at least not clearly reporting their data. Um, uh, and, then, uh, and, then, and then running through the algorithms and making sure that it was, um, that everything sort of all tied together. This was a very clerically challenging uh, project. Yeah. By clerical, I mean that we had many thousands of pieces of, of data. Um, and it was a, a multi-step process, probably like an eight or 12-step process to go from the uh, signal and data that came off the instrument to an actual um, trained data set. And making sure that each step of the way we weren't making mistakes was, was just, so, you know, just from a data handling perspective, very challenging. Um, and then when we did train our, our algorithms, we said, well, and our, our, our statistical models um, and, 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 and software pipeline to generate all this, uh, we then took a step back and said, yeah, it looks good to us, but gee, let, let's look at the data that was published um, in the literature um, and take their raw laboratory data, which was published because these were academic papers, run it through the pipeline and see if we get the same answers they did, because we should. We ran it through our pipeline, didn't get the same answers which is then, then threw us into a loop for six or nine months because then we're like, well, heck, um, if, if we're using their raw data but not getting their end results but right. implementing their models that they published, like there must be something wrong with what we did. So we were had to check every little step along the way. And as it turned out, we were able to show that uh, some of the algorithms that had been published in the past were, were just super accurate. We were able to replicate their data to like the third decimal place. Um, and then other articles in the in the literature, we weren't able to replicate their data, and we were off by, or differed by twenty or thirty percent. We and we finally wow. came to a conclusion with all of our own internal checks and quality assurances, and looking at it from all these different angles, was that, you know, they probably made a mistake uh, clerically in reporting their their results, and that's one of the reasons why the current algorithms aren't as um, uh, precise or as accurate. Wow, 20 or 30%. So what about the competition in terms of, it, 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 not only in terms of really the old way of doing things, right? but is anyone else um, trying to do what you've already done? Yes, yeah, so, so certainly. So as it, um, there are some academics, um, some you know professors in laboratories who are doing basic discovery research uh, who work in this field. Um, as it turns out, um, it's a very niche field. Um, it, that's really surprising to me, considering how important these algorithms are to most of biotechnology. 
there's maybe six laboratories in the United States and maybe a dozen or two around the world that actually have like generate the data to, to come up with new algorithms. Uh, so our competition uh, are those academic laboratories. And then there are a number of uh, companies. Um, Ionis Pharmaceuticals is one that uh, has, has done their own laboratory work and has developed their own algorithms based off of their, their own laboratory work. Um, but the, the reason that it's um, perhaps a real niche mark or sort of area of science is that um, the, the statistics involved are sort of unique. Um, and not many people are trained in the st that exact statistical models, which doesn't mean to say a general statistician couldn't like look at it and, and pick it up, but, but the data that needs to be generated is driven by us thinking of a, of a new model and then going into the lab and generating very specific data that um, is unique and cannot be used in genetic experiments. What other um, endeavors have done um, is, well, they've done the same thing we have done, but just on a much smaller scale because it costs so much to do the laboratory work, they, they could only afford to do smaller a smaller amount of data. Um, but in sort of everyday activity, as people were designing um, assays and gene therapies to many, many different genes, uh, they would get an idea of which ones worked and which ones didn't. And so they took those data sets and tried to figure out why some were working and some weren't. But because those designs were not made in a methodical way, it was just sort of, I guess, what's the analogy? You know, you throw spaghetti against the wall and you hope something sticks. It's just like the quality of the data was just really haphazard. And, and it just didn't, um, it, it just doesn't give enough information to really derive something meaningful out of that. So you, you've got an impressive list of clients. I mean, from diagnostic companies like Exact Sciences and, and Invitae um, to gene therapy companies like Regenix and, and Spark and vaccine companies like Merck and SmithKline. What have been the, the challenges in terms of acceptance? And what kind of company is more likely to um, look favorably right. upon what you're doing? Right. Well, thank you. So, yeah. So um, some of the companies you mentioned are clients. Others are ones that um, we're doing pilot studies with. And others are ones that um, I sort of gave to you as a list of ones that are you know, sort of working in the, in, in the space. Uh, where we, we don't have a relationship with, but certainly would, would like to. Um, so the, the resistance um, and the questions that they have is in, in part overcoming a, a bit of the disbelief that the current algorithms aren't as good as they could be because they've been in use for so long and so many people have relied on them and just not really thought much about whether they're accurate and precise. Um, and then... Uh, most companies have something very unique about how they go about their, their process or their drug. And so no matter how many pilot prior studies that we have um, that show the efficacy of our algorithms, um, new customers often say, well, 
but we've got something a little different. How do we know it's going to work in our system? And so we, we point to both our laboratory data that we generate in training the algorithms and say, see, we, we've got this biophysical data that shows it's better. You know, that's sort of like the, um, with, with a car and, and putting it on, on, a, on an, um, you know, uh, miles per gallon and saying, well, we have, you know, more miles per gallon. Like, well, yeah, you did that on a laboratory test, but how do I know that when I'm driving around my town, I'm going to have better miles per gallon on this model? So we, we often have to go through a very short uh, pilot project where, where we, uh, on a small scale, uh, charge a, um, you know, sort of a nominal professional fee. We make some designs and, and uh, work with the customer establish the relationship and they try it in the laboratory and generally they get better results than they were getting before and then they're willing to either uh, license our software which is what we're our, our primary business model is um, or or to do you know a, a larger project as a as a professional services agreement more of like a partner that was kind of going to be my next question is is what what the business model is i know that ionis is kind of a they're looking for royals right, right. Um, you are um, more, I guess, of a SaaS kind of model, right? Or a consumption yes, yes, a subscription model for sure. Yeah. Is it a subscription or is it a consumption model? We we pay when we use it. Uh, tip, well, typically it's more a subscription model, okay. uh, rather you know, so like an, an annual subscription rather than pay for it when we need it. Um, and so the benefit of that is that they that then client has their own fixed cost. They know what that cost is, um, and they have as much use of that software as they need to. Now the the price of that subscription might depend on on usage and how large the company is and how many projects that they're doing and that sort of thing. Um, but the other reason that that works um, is that there's a number of different ways that we could deliver the software. Uh, certainly, uh, it could be over the internet that on our servers or, you know, on Amazon servers, we uh, make the uh, algorithms available to, to customers. Um, but some customers don't like that because they are very concerned about their intellectual property and they want to keep their intellectual property within their walls, including the internet walls. And so they would prefer us to deliver some software code to them that lives within their building and they can integrate it into their existing pipeline with one or two lines of code. And then it runs on their servers and, and they're not concerned about, uh, you know, some, somebody stealing uh, their, their intellectual property. Because really um, for a gene editing company and gene therapy company, it's that guide strand, that gene probe, that exact sequence that ends up being the primary intellectual property that that they have. That is the drug, just just like the small chemical in in, um, in traditional pharmaceutical companies. But how do you avoid sort of that opposite concern that someone steals the code? It's so, protected. Okay. It, it's um, it's encrypted. The co okay. our code is encrypted. Um, and so it would, uh, I mean, so no encryption algorithm is perfect, but they would have to, uh, if somebody wanted to reverse engineer our code, uh, it would, it would take them, uh, uh, you know, quite a specialty to actually decrypt the code. Interesting. Okay. So, so that, that, that's how it's, uh, yeah, the algorithms are encrypted. So they, um, they, they can't get at the actual code. And then, and then what we supply to them is, uh, is is you know a, um, an example 
software code that's not encrypted, which they then integrate into their pipeline, but, but the actual library is, is the, the code is encrypted and it's only executables and it's very hard to decompile. Okay, okay. So Raymond, one of the, the things that I find interesting about yourself really, aside from DNA analytics is that you're active in, in providing strategic advice to uh, other early stage companies in the DC yes. area. If you had to boil it all down to one bit of advice, and I know that's hard to do. Yeah. But what would it be? I would say that it's, uh, you know, endurance. Uh, stick to your guns. You know, if you um, uh, have something that's really useful, uh, it, it's going to take usually a little bit to make people uh, realize uh, the benefits of that. And it's going to take some time to develop that. And so you are likely to have hurdles in your way, as we all know. I mean, that happens every day in life. And you have to be able to uh, figure out a way to overcome those, those hurdles. And in, in my case, uh, the, the motivation for me was having um, you know, sort of knowledge of the industry um, and, and knowing how important these algorithms are and what a difference it could make to getting therapies to people and seeing that there really wasn't anyone else pursuing this was just, it's like, this has got to be valuable. And, and just that sort of deep held belief that um, this is something that really is going to move the industry forward. Right. You know, I, I'm really surprised, or maybe this did happen, that, you know, out at J.P. Morgan, you know, you weren't surrounded by guys from CRISPR and Intellia and, you know, Editas, especially Editas. They can really right. listen to um, but, right. but just, you know, Raymond, we need to, we have to have this and we have to have it now. Uh, so, right. Well, I agree. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, so we, we were at a, at that conference. I mean, we did have about twenty five one on one meetings, not with the the as you know some smaller companies, not the larger ones that you mentioned, but uh, we so um, you know to get to larger companies like that, you generally have to have a little bit more of a track record. In a way, our um, this conference in just last week is um, our company's commercial coming out party that we've developed the algorithms, uh, we've gone purposefully slow. Uh, one of our customers, Switch Therapeutics, has um, now data from the laboratory that shows the efficacy of our algorithms. And that's kind of the, the next step that you need to attract the, the interest of other companies. It's like, well, what, what's your data? Show us that you're, you're, you know, that it's not just speculative, that your value proposition actually is true. And we've been able to show that. And so now that we're able to show that, uh, we're, we're willing to go out and try to get meetings. Uh, we, we're not out so much uh, getting meetings. We we're waiting for this, this data from, from the early trials to, to come in so that we could actually talk about something significant. And so when you said that, um, uh, to get back to something you said before, about like, what's the one thing you would say to entrepreneurs? Well, the hardest one of the hardest things is to get that those first customers and to actually get that data that shows that there really is efficacy because that's really what um, 
you know, partners and customers want. You know, they ha you have they have to show them that there's actual value here, and that other people have realized that value. Uh, we've been really fortunate that we've had uh, um, scientists and clients who uh, understood uh, the the basics and were able to look at our laboratory data and, and agree that that laboratory data looked well enough as to train the algorithms that they were willing to give it a shot. And they did, and it improved their process, and it saved them time and money. So they were willing to license the software and continue with it. Raymond, thank you so much for spending uh, some time with us today. I really enjoyed getting to know you and getting to know more about DNA analytics, because I think that it can be transformative to an area which I personally believe is, is going to be transformational, not only to medicine, but to the economy. Yes. And um, we need that transformation. We, well, we do. Um, and yes, it's a healthcare, keeping people healthy and a, a vibrant, robust economy. And all of those uh, go towards, you know, national competitiveness and, and uh, well-being of both people in our country and around the world. Right. And, and it really is just gathering in its infancy. It was interesting that you said, when I mentioned CRISPR and Intellia, those are, you said that they were big companies. They're only, you know, $4 billion companies. Well, I, I right, they're I get small it. Small yeah. companies in the context of, for example, let's say DocuSign. Yes. Thirty, you know, right. billion sure. dollars. And um, I would submit that it's a nice product. Yep. It does enable you to, uh, to avoid going to the lawyer's office and all that sort of thing, but right. I don't anticipate it will change the world or the economy. Right. So in, in the biotech industry, uh, there are some bigger players like Genentech uh, that are well known and, and sort of household names, perhaps. Um, but a lot of biotech is surprisingly not exactly mom and pop businesses, but almost. Right, right. Um, Moderna almost failed I think, yeah. two or three times. Right, exactly. Prior to COVID was like a $500 million company. Yes. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful field. But anyway, to get back, just thank you very much for your time, Raymond. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you and, and getting to know more about DNA analytics. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for the uh, good questions. It um, was very nice to be able to explain, hopefully in relatively uh, understandable terms, what it is that we do. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Life Sciences and Biotech Podcast. We'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this website and podcast are purely informational and not considered investment recommendations. Tim Dory's participation in Biotech Insights is separate and apart from his role as an investment advisor representative. Nothing contained herein can be construed as a recommendation or endorsement of any of the companies discussed. Tim Doherty also has no financial affiliation with any of the companies mentioned in this communication. Tim Doherty makes no representation that the information contained in this material is accurate and is under no obligation to update this information as changes occur.